Sydney Youth Orchestras acknowledge the Gadigal, Wangal and Baramadigal people of the Darug and Eora nations, the traditional custodians of the land on which we perform and rehearse, and their connections to land, water and community. We, the young musicians of SYO, come together from the lands of many nations and peoples. We pay our respects to elders past and present. The original storytellers of these lands where we learn and create music today. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and honour the continuation of the oldest music practice in the world. If you could hear the orchestra of the future, what would it sound like? We see the world around us, but we very much hear the world around us. Welcome to Tempo. Proudly presented by Sydney Youth Orchestras. It was my whole social life as well, you know, with SYO on the weekends as I was a teenager and everything. Tempo speaks with some of the biggest names in orchestral music and explores their journey from youth orchestra to world stage. The violin was just the vehicle to get the music out there because people are impacted by that. And it features questions from us. With your host and renowned Australian conductor and SYO alumni, Matthew Curry. Hello, I'm Matthew Curry and this is Tempo. My guest today is the extraordinary Kirsty Hilton. Kirsty is a fantastic fiddler who I've known since our Sydney Youth Orchestra days. She was a star then and she's a star now. And it was no surprise when, after only a few years from her Youth Orchestra days, she was playing with great orchestras like the Bavarian Radio, the Mahler Chamber Orchestra and the Berlin Philharmonic. And she is now principal second violin of the Sydney Symphony Orchestra. Kirsty, thanks for joining me. And let me start by asking you, what is your first musical memory? First musical memory, I guess it would be SYO. Really? Yeah, being in the junior strings, wearing our little red T-shirts. <laughs> I didn't get those. Didn't <laughs> No, you? I didn't get a T-shirt. I don't uh, think I got a T-shirt. Uh, all right. <laughs> there must have been something before that, like well, you're obviously already playing the violin. How did that come about? So I started violin when I was five with the Suzuki Method. Right. But before that, when I was four years old, my parents had taken me to a little rhythm class, Mm -hmm. the Kadai method. That was just a local thing with clapping rhythms, things like that. Because both my parents were amateur musicians. My dad played horn, like you, Matt, and my mum played the flute. So they were interested. And then I think in this class, the teacher said I had talent and I should start an instrument. And I think the choice was basically violin, piano, what my mum and dad offered me. And I chose violin. So I did two years of the Suzuki method with Joyce Churchill as my teacher, mm. who is Katie Betts' grandmother. Oh, wow. Okay. Also an SYO girl. Yeah. Before, when I was seven, going to the conservatorium already to Alice Watton, who was my teacher, right through pretty much. Yeah, she taught you for yeah. a long time, didn't she? She did, yeah. So she was in Hong Kong for a couple of years in between. Yeah. But otherwise, I was with her from when I was seven until I moved overseas when I was... 20. Wow. So this yeah. is, you know, you took it, I guess music was in the family, both your parents were musicians and even yeah. before you could play, you were doing musical activities. I, I'm Actually, I'm, yeah. I didn't know you did Kodai Method so early on. I had no idea it was a thing in Australia that people could just send there. Yeah. Well, I actually can't remember that. That's just how I know. Yeah. How um, I got into Yeah. When did you work out this was going to be your thing? I can't ever remember, to be honest, thinking this was it. It was just, I sort of always did it. I always enjoyed it. It was my whole social life as well, you know, with SYO on the weekends as I was a teenager and everything. I went to the conservatorium high school. It was just something that I did. I remember I did have a point leaving high school where I thought maybe I want to do something else just because that's, you know, a change. It's all I'd ever done. was interested in film production and things, but that was all. 
too hard to get into. And I guess you'd already walked a, a long way down the musical road. By the time you'd left high school, you were already very accomplished. You would have done exactly. You already done SYO off in, in the firsts, and I think you already did yeah. AYO in school. Yeah, I did AYO from when I was as soon as I turned fifteen. As soon as I was old enough to do yeah. it. Yeah, and I think you ended up being concert master for a time as well, right? I was, right. yeah. Up until this point, you followed the route of a lot of Sydney musicians, the youth orchestra stuff. You were the con high, which yeah. some people do, some people don't. But you chose to go to the, I think, the Australian Institute of Music, didn't you? That's because Alice went there, so I followed her then. Following in Alice's footsteps. Yes. I'm still curious about that because you're one of the few musicians of my generation that did that. And I think at the time yeah. it was probably a very young institution, right? It was, yeah. So it was basically a few teachers that people went there for. So there were a lot of good violinists there who followed us. Sophie Rao was there. Right. So we'd all gone there with Alice. But, yeah, it wasn't at that time the institution that most people went to. Right. Yeah. And so I think after that, am I right in thinking you went to the UK for further study after that? Yeah. When I first left Australia, I went to London for one year to Guildhall and studied with David Takeno. Yeah, great teacher. Which he was amazing. That was great. But it was just more of a case of living in London, not earning money, had scholarship money that was just right. going down. <laughs> and I couldn't, I didn't have a working visa there or anything, so I just couldn't earn any money. And then I auditioned for Carry On Academy in Berlin and I was very lucky to get a place there. And that was then suddenly I was earning money, had my own apartment. Wow. How old were you when that happened? 21, just turned 21 when I went there. Yeah. yeah. You must have been. So yeah. quite quickly you ended up playing with the Berlin Phil. I'm presuming were you the youngest in yeah. the auction when you started? I think I was. I'm trying to think. There were a few around that age in the academy, yeah. but maybe I was the youngest. Oh, that's that's worth it. Mate. I'm not sure. I was the, I was often the youngest in things. That's all changed. Um, well, that's the nature of time. <laughs> exactly. Hopefully, for a few years at the end of our careers, we'll be going. I'm the oldest. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly, um, exactly. Well, that must have been. I mean, utterly thrilling. I'm sure. So, tell me about the Curry On Academy, how it works then, and I know you had some experience in Australia professionally. Am I right? A little bit of experience? I'd played in ACO for nearly two years before. There you go. I, how I do went. I skip over your ACO years? I must. Well, actually, when did that happen? Pretty much straight out of school, did a lot, and then I had a contract for a year before I moved to London. So, yeah, I was 19. There you go. ACO and Berlin Phil are both crack ensembles, but I imagine they're very, very different. One's an enormous orchestra, one's a, yeah. you know, more or less a small string orchestra. Absolutely. I mean, I've never conducted Berlin Phil, but I've seen plenty of performances and videos and one of the things is they yeah. have their you often see the conductor do something and then and then sometime later the orchestra does something as well yeah. and so it yes. must have been a real uh shift and to, to get the sense of playing that ensemble i guess no it was definitely from playing so much aco that was my mozart concerto i completely modeled on how richard tonietti played mm -hmm. and things and my audition in berlin they were kind of like Who's this? You know, right. is it how we play? And I was kind of, yeah, I mean, in the beginning, the teachers who were actually teachers there, some of the concert masters said they didn't want to teach me because I was too different. Mm. You know, they didn't think I'd fit into the Berlin Philharmonic tradition. Mm. And then my teacher, Rainer Zoller, who took me in the end, he wasn't going to teach actually. So I think I knew Wolfram Christ and uh, Brett Dean, a few people there who said, you know, we've got someone here, very talented, but 
no one wants to teach her, <laughs> basically. What? And they called Raina Zona and he said, uh, well, tell her to come and play for me tomorrow. And then he said he'd take me. I was lucky. He basically said, well, you need to adapt to our style if you're going to play in the orchestra. And I think they were pretty worried that I'd do that, but I did. That brings me back to, well, how did you win the position? It sounds like they thought, well, obviously you're an exceptional violinist, but very different to them. And yet they took you yeah. irrespective. They took a chance. They took a chance with right. me. So. Oh, mm. that's And then I, I had to prove pretty quickly that I'd adapt, which I did. Yeah. So Incredible. Well, actually, yeah. knowing what you're saying, I, I know that the fact that you maybe you did your Mozart in a Richard Tognetti sort of style was just because of the fact that you'd adapted to that chamber orchestra already. Well, exactly. And so yeah. now you, you can put on another hat for Berlin Film. Yeah. Am I right in thinking you jumped around? Because I, th- I know you got the, the principal, a principal second role in Bavarian Radio, which is another great orchestra. I think Marius Janssens was chief when you were appointed. Is that right? Marzell was still there as chief Marzell, for my first year. Then Janssens and now yeah. Rattle. A great band. So did that come straight after the academy? Because I think you bounced back in a bit between the orchestras. Am I right in thinking that? When I finished the academy, I'd done an audition in Berlin Phil, which I just missed out on, but they gave me a contract for a year. The academy was two years, and then I had a third year as a on contract, so I had pretty much three full years there in Berlin. And then I got, actually, <laughs> the day before I won the audition in Bajor Wonfurt, I won a job in Munich Philharmonic. Oh, across the road. Yeah. <laughs> and then I got the job the next day in Weichel und Funk and I took the job in Weichel und Funk. Why did you choose one over the other? Weichel und Funk sort of had a better reputation at that time and just from advice from people in Berlin, they said they thought that would be what I should take. I mean, there was absolutely fantastic wind players in Weichel und Funk at the time, like François Leleur was principal oboe. And so I'd seen concerts that I found really exciting. Yeah from them. Munich Philharmonic's also a very good orchestra. No doubt. um, One of the things I guess that's happened here is you've now, you've shifted becoming, were you mostly playing second violin in Berlin or were you playing first or was it a mix? My contract was second violin in Berlin. In the academy, you you swapped Mm. between the two sections, but yeah, I've always preferred second violin. Oh, you have. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. I have. Let's talk a little bit about this. In fact, this is one of the questions from some of the youth orchestra players have given me some questions I want to ask. And Isabel, okay. who's one of the regional SYO musicians, said, what's the best thing about playing seconds as of playing first in an orchestra? Well, there's some people who only want to play first violin. I've never been like that, even as a child. I think I remember reading back a newspaper article from when I was nine or something saying I wanted to be a second violin player in <laughs> a big orchestra. I just love the inside parts. I like the whole sitting in the middle of the orchestra being surrounded by the sound. I'm just somewhat, maybe it's just because I'm used to it, but I feel more comfortable in the lower positions, the lower strings. I like that deeper sound rather than up high. Some people like playing the melody the whole time, but I actually like having the inner parts, and it's a different skill as well. You know what Bernstein said about second violins? No. He says it's so hard to find a good second violin. I think it's just most people don't want to do it. They feel like if you can't win first, then you'll be seconds. (laughs) Yeah, but I think his point was, that that inner voice is so important and it's actually yeah. the hardest to be yeah. musical with something that might look a little plainer on the page. When you've got the melody, yeah. it's a bit more obvious what to do with it or it can be done with it. Well, that's true. Whereas second violins have to be a bit more perhaps inventive and improvisatory to respond to what's going on around it, which I think is, is, is true. Yeah, yeah, 
you have to be more alert, I guess. Really, really active. In terms of your multitasking, well, I guess I'm racing ahead yeah. a little bit now because obviously you've had the German years, you've got the Bavarian Radio Orchestra. At some point in that, Mahler Chamber Orchestra and Sydney Symphony became your next positions, I guess. So tell me about the Mahler Chamber Orchestra because I assume that happened while you were still based in Germany. I think Mahler Chamber started in 2000 mm-hmm. was the year that it was Claudio Abbado formed this orchestra. So there were a lot of people from Carrion Academy playing in that. So he sort of invited people from the Gustav Mahler Youth Orchestra and a lot of them were in Carrion Academy. So that was sort of a lot of my friends were doing it. So I was dying to do it. They had a casual audition at some point. Then I went and did in Ferrara in Italy where they had a lot of concerts. It was the most beautiful city there. Have you been there? I haven't. I must. Near Bologna. And I went and did the audition, was successful, and it just happened to be while I was there, someone was sick on the tour they were on, and they asked me if I wanted to stay and finish that tour, so I did. And then I just sort of got in straight away and was asked for lots of things straight away. So I did as much as I could. It's a touring orchestra, so they always meet in the place the tour is starting and rehearse. Everyone lives in a different city. Most people are in Europe, and then they do these tours, and they have always great conductors, great soloists. It was really fun and had this sort of youth orchestra feel still as well. Yeah, because it's not a full-time thing. It always feels like an, an Exactly. Event. I'm yeah. a bit curious about yeah. it because I, I know a little bit about the Mahler Chamber Orchestra. One of the things I notice is they don't, they don't necessarily seem to be programming like a chamber orchestra and they don't seem to be doing that much Mahler. So <laughs> explain yourselves, Mahler Chamber Orchestra. Well, the Mahler name came from Gustav Mahler Youth Orchestra. From, yeah, that was sort of, yeah, so Abado, it was sort of an offshoot from that. So there was sort of most senior players who, like, that's where the Mahler comes from. And Chamber, I mean, it is smaller than a symphony orchestra. Yeah. I mean, they do some smaller things and they do a fair bit unconducted these days too. Right. But, yeah, they do do a lot of bigger stuff too. And so were you doing that together with Bavarian Radio Orchestra? Yes, I was. So I do, yeah, as much as I could with pretty good schedules in Bavarian Radio, you know, enough time on off that I could yeah. manage to do some tours. Yeah. When I left, actually I only became a member of Mahler Chamber once I moved back to Australia, <laughs> funnily enough. Just to complicate things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and for the first few years that I was living here, I probably went five or six times a year back to Europe. Oh, wow. From Sydney that, to, yeah, Sydney to was, the European for Marlowe Chamber. Uh, which, yeah, I can't even imagine that now. No, fair enough. For the first time in my life, I don't even have a valid passport right now. How extraordinary. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, that then brings us to you are in Sydney. You left the Bavarian Radio. I'm sure that must have been – I can – sort of imagine the reasons, and I'm sure that must have been difficult. So tell us about that decision, leaving such a great position in such a great orchestra. I loved the orchestra in Munich, and so it, was, I didn't, it wasn't that I wanted to leave that or anything. It was just there were principal positions free in Sydney Symphony. As you know, in Australia, there's just not a lot of jobs around, you know, so once those jobs are gone, you know, they're probably gone for the next 20 years or something. Yeah. I knew I wanted to come back at some point. And I was quite homesick. I mean, I could have stayed another 10 years maybe in Munich, but it was just these jobs were free now. And I thought if I miss that opportunity, then that's it. So I, first of all, I came into the position of assistant concert master in Sydney Symphony. And I was there for about a year and a half or two years. And the principal second job was free. It had been free for a long time. And they were having sort of a expressions of interest process and they asked if I was interested and 
as I said, I've always liked second violins. And for me, it's just, I feel more comfortable in that job. It's like assistant concert master, that sort of job is quite difficult because you've got to always be ready to jump in yeah, if concert master's sick or something. You know, it's a lot of pressure of it not knowing exactly. Whereas where I am now, I know I'm sitting in that chair. I'm the principal. That's it. So anyway, that all worked out and I moved over to that job. I love the fact that what that involved is really <laughs> moving 20 inches left. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so you, you one chair over. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. The other thing about your time with Sydney Symphony is you have been given some fantastic opportunities. I know you did the triple concerto. I think Ashkenazi was conducting mm. Katie Hugel, Clem Lesky, of course. So that's fantastic. You still have these opportunities. One of the things that being a principal is still a really consuming job. How do you find when you do your extra stuff, or we take on something as significant as a concerto, how do you prepare for that? Because it's sort of something that's probably you hadn't done for probably a decade ago. You're constantly doing concertos, at least for auditions. So it was always there. But it's a big shift. Yeah. So how was that for you? That was a like major event <laughs> that took a lot of preparation. <laughs> yeah, it was like when I first was asked to do it, it was like, no way. And then thought about it and it's the sort of thing you always know once you do it, you're really happy you've done it and it's a great experience. But the lead up, it's, if you don't do it all the time, it's very difficult, yeah. you know. Yeah. So that was, you know, reading books and the art of Zen and the art of archery. Yeah, right. Getting into the zone. Mind games. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. And how, how was that for you in the end? Well, in the end, when it was over, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I'm really glad I did yeah. it. It wasn't something I just did easily. You know, yeah. it took, I, and I practiced a lot and made sure I was 150% yeah. on top of it. Some performances, are, you don't enjoy them until you've got back down from the top of Everest, I think. <laughs> Once you're at base camp. Pretty much, like for solo things, yeah, yeah. For me, it's not easy. It's just so hard when you don't do it all the time. I mean, I mean, soloists, I guess that's what they do. And when you don't, it's it's pretty hard. No, yeah. Now I want to get back. So you were talking about you were jumping between Sydney and your European gigs with the Marla Chamber Orchestra. How did you manage that? Yeah, I can see why you'd want to do it. It was very tiring, and I'd often, you know, land in Sydney at 6 a.m. and have to go straight to rehearsal at 10, you know, to make it work with the timing. And at the same time, I always felt energised both there and here when I come back doing different things. Yeah. So it's, I think it's good for people to do different things like that. I didn't really make money from it because I'd spend all my money on yeah. flights yeah, back and yeah. forth. But, yeah, I love doing it and – the only reason I don't do it anymore is because I now have a toddler. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old little boy, so it's just not feasible at the moment. But otherwise, I'm, I probably would still be doing it. I just loved the whole this feeling like a festival orchestra, youth orchestra, because people are just coming together away from their normal jobs and everyone wants to be there for these things. It's a different feeling from... I guess we have to get out of our routine sometimes, don't we, to sort of refresh Yeah, exactly. I love the fact that Often the best things musicians can do to give themselves more enthusiasm about their music is to take a busman's holiday and play music somewhere else. Yeah. You have to walk in and know it's going to be different. It's, it's going to be different repertoire, different people. It just gives you energy to have that change, you know. Beyond the energy, I imagine also, I don't know the Marla Chamber Orchestra, but I imagine they play quite differently to a large orchestra like Sydney. I guess you've worked out what the difference is. But what are the differences? What, what do you have to check as you move from one to the other? 
Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, normally Marla Chamber also has a conductor, like in Sydney. Now they, that, like at the moment, they've just been on tour with Pekka Kusisto mm-hmm. directing yep. things like that. So they're a bit more ACO style, I guess. I mean, even with big repertoire, I guess the main influence in Marla Chamber is like German style because most people are from German orchestras or Dutch orchestras. So it's it's very like dark, round sound. Oh, I don't know, like what the different way of playing. It's, they've all played together for years and years from youth orchestra as well, so everyone knows each other's playing very well. And like a lot of people have, I guess, played together since they were teenagers. You know, right? I'm going to ask you about that because it's come up a few times. I'm aware of this concept of a German sound, and you studied in Australia, you studied in England. How would you describe the differences? What separates them? Sort of this dark. Well, like you were saying, um, seeing how far. They play behind the beat, things like this, the German Oxford. And I remember when I first went to Berlin, I didn't really get that. You know, I was ready to do a pizzicato, like, boom, on the front of the beat and no one else played for another second. And they said to me, like, no, 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 it doesn't need to be together. You don't want it to be together because then the sound's too hard. You know, you want this from the bass up, like, and they do that on purpose, but it's there's never an edge to the sound at all. Yeah. So I've sort of been used to here, like, playing much more on the beat, yeah. which is more American style, yeah. I guess. It's interesting you say that because you say there's no edge, but what's interesting about Berlin is there's enormous energy. So somehow there's enormous energy, there's energy yes. without edge, I guess, there is what is. you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. an interesting sort of yin and yang in that, isn't there? Yeah, there is. It's hard to describe how, you know, their focus definitely isn't on playing together, but somehow it is together without trying to do that. Yeah, right. So, yeah, it's just this this rich, dark sound and I guess listening always, yeah, it was also always coming from the bass yeah. first. Timpani, yeah. really important. That was, you know, drummed, drummed into us. That pun will not be forgiven. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned a little while ago, well, you know, there have been a couple of, obviously COVID slowed down your international travel, but before that I think you, you had your little boy. That's something that happens in most musicians' lives at some point, especially you know, female musician, that you have a kid and all of a sudden you have to deal with your high-profile job and the demands of being a parent. Has that happened for you? Yeah, well, so the, because he was born during COVID, I had a very long maternity leave because we just weren't working. <laughs> that was lucky in one way, but then also it was difficult coming back to work. I'm a single mum as well. So he, I think he didn't know anyone else existed in the world apart from me for a long time. (laughs) So he had severe separation anxiety when I first had to put him in daycare and babysitters and things. He's settled down a lot now. It is hard. You know, sometimes you have to go into a concert where you haven't slept. The audience doesn't care if you haven't slept. (laughs) It's like, you know, you've just got to deliver. And yeah, even now, Sunday night. So I, you know, if we have concerts three nights in a row and I get home after 11 o'clock and then he's up at 5.30 and he doesn't have a nap anymore in the day if he's home and, you know, and then you go back in the eight o'clock concert. Then on Sunday night, for instance, now he had a terrible fever and wasn't himself we ended up in emergency oh, for the night he's fine but you know you have things like that but it doesn't matter you have to then be there on stage the next night but it's in a way it's good as well because and people used to tell me before they had kids that you know that was their relaxing time to get on stage and I couldn't imagine that because that was I'd build up to it for the whole day it is then and so there's different sides to it you enjoy and uh, on stage as well because it is 
relaxing in a way compared to the rest of the day. <laughs> Fair enough. I guess that brings us up to now. Yeah. So I'm asking, you know, how do you stay motivated in that role? Because you've been there for a while, right? You're a mum, that's a new challenge. Are there things that in the next 5, 10, 20 years you think, oh, actually, I'd like to explore this more, whether it's musical or not musical? Or is it like, no, I'm a mum now and I'm a principal violinist. I'm doing that now. And that's 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 all my full concentration. At the moment, that's how I sort of feel. That's sort of all I can manage being a mum, doing my job there properly. Maybe once he starts school, it's just at the moment as well. I feel if I committed to a lot of other things, you know, it's if he's sick or something and you've got to cancel, you're letting so many people down. Yeah. So I'm just sort of at the moment doing my job and being a mum. Yeah. But I mean, I hope that again, I'll do maybe even touring again at some point or the old, of course, not to the extent that I did before, but there's things with Marla Chamber where they're in one place for two weeks and things. If I could do something like that where I could take him or something, yeah. you know, I would like to again. But, well, I'm yeah. going to get to the, the point now that we call the final bar where we have a couple of questions from uh, SYO players that have been shot at you. This is a, from another one, this yeah. is from Mayim. She asks, how do you stay motivated to practice regularly? Well, <laughs> at the moment, I'm the wrong person to ask. Well, um, <laughs> well, I mean, now also when time is so limited for me, you just have to do it when you can do it and you have to be very concentrated and you just stay motivated as in, I want to do a good job still. I want to be respected and always perform well. So I, I'm aware of what I can get away with when I really have no time yeah. <laughs> and then what I have to do. Yeah. And you have to be able to focus and concentrate in a short time, which is good as well because I used to waste so much time, you know, doing three hours on who knows, you know, not really concentrating. And I can do that now in half an hour if I need to. Yeah, it's fascinating. That's true. <laughs> I guess there's sometimes you just realize what you can do when you have no time to do it if you have to, if you put on the spot. I also make sure now that in rehearsals and things, I'm really concentrating on my actual playing as well, that sort of practice as well, focusing what am I doing uh, I see. So it's not a passive. You're not just sitting there. You're thinking, how's the sound? How's my technique? How's my posture? Always. It's not just, yeah, coming for the ride. Yeah. It is funny how we often, I think, we turn off and just go on autopilot, which is sort of part of being a good performer yeah. in some regards, but actually it can also create a lot of problems and then if your time is short, you, you realise that you've, you've not got the most out of it. Yeah, can use that time. My next question is from Izzy who plays violin. It's a simple one. Mm-hmm. Baroque or classical? Rock or baroque? Oh, no. <laughs> baroque or classical. <laughs> Izzy, what about romantic or well, modern we- or renaissance? I know, I know. Well, I have to say baroque, I love it and we rarely do it. You know, we were just talking about that recently that we in like Sydney Symphony that sort of orchestra you rarely get to do that stuff and it's so fun to play and so beautiful when we do so I wish I could do more of it but we just don't really get the chance and then at the same time classical I mean I love playing a Haydn symphony or something that for me is and that's the sort of thing for second violins is really fun I think like in a Haydn symphony second violins have the best part yeah the real powerhouse do you think that conducting are you do you notice that? Well, I do actually because I think the thing is it's so interesting how, yeah, there's this attitude of it's the sometimes thought of as the filler or something like that. But actually it's the engine room. You do the, all that classical repertoire. And yeah. if you take that away, you realise how uninteresting the things are around you. I, I don't know why. I mean, I guess I do know why but because there's harmony there. But there's that rhythmic pulse. And, you know, the, the seconds and the violas especially, often joined by other people, but the seconds and violas are, 
almost like the drum kit of a of a band, the rhythm section, I think. Especially yeah. that music. So yeah. as soon as you take away that that yeah. sort of drive and that insistence, the tension between the fact that they're often rhythmic and a melody is often floats a little bit more. So there's that tension between what appears to be metronomic and what appears to be more expressible, could be freer, then just so much the music becomes less interesting. Yeah. That was supposed to be a short question. But <laughs> I want to open up Izzy's questions a little bit because she limited it to Baroque or classical. But do you, yeah. outside of that, do you have a, an era or a music that you feel more at home with or passionate about? Well, I mean, I love playing Marlow symphonies. I love Bruckner, yeah. the big Strauss stuff. You and me both, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. should have been a horn player. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think that was from um, like my time in Berlin in the academy. Like I was so like I'd never played a Mahler symphony or a Bruckner symphony before I went there, and then I did them all with people like Abado and Blomstedt. I still got to play a Bruckner symphony with Gunther Wundt before he died. You know things like that. So I just have such great memories of learning these pieces like that, and I still I just love playing that big stuff. And, you know, we played Mahler 1 here in Sydney a few weeks ago with Simone mm. conducting, and it was great. Yeah. And when all the horns stand up at the end and everything, I still I get all teary every yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. That obviously, that was the opera house, I take it? Yes. So that brings us to our last question from Esther, who plays cello, and she says, how does it feel to perform frequently at the Sydney Opera House? Well, since it's been renovated as well, it's really exciting and it's great, the acoustics great there's you know a few new challenges just it can be very loud on stage so we're still learning we have to play differently from how we used to before it was renovated but it's a really good hall now in this most famous building and such a beautiful location and the concerts that we've had since it reopened have all been really exciting yeah, so we just had two weeks with Donald Runnicles conducting. This week we're playing a new violin concerto from George Lentz oh, yes. in the orchestra. I think you know. Yeah. It Arabella Steinbacher is playing. It's great. Umberto Clariti is conducting. And we're also doing Alza Spach Zarathustra. So we're doing a lot of big repertoire and, yeah, it's great playing the opera. I mean, it, it was just always before it was this acoustic lens down, you yeah. know. And now that's fixed. How do you think, I mean, I, that was, again, that was supposed to be a short question, but actually Esther opened up a can of worms because I think there's that thrill that I guess I always felt whenever I got there, I was thinking, oh, my God, this building is so stunning. Then going on stage is like, yeah, that works. It's not great. But now yeah. the orchestra really has an acoustic that, that it deserves. But there's that thing. So tell me, I'm really fascinated. So how do you have to play differently? What's How's the orchestra changing I mean, I know it's still early days. It's less than a year, right? So how's it feeling? So, I mean, there's things that they, they can change. It's quite dramatic, the difference just from lowering half a metre and things, these new shells yeah. that they have. Um, the purple petals. Yes, exactly. The the nails. looks like a nail it cell. It does, doesn't it? People say. Yeah. I think the orcs, for one, they should all commit to wearing purple nails in, in, uh, <laughs> in an active ensemble Definitely. with the building. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it can be quite bright the sound right. so especially the high strings and that can be quite strident so you need to just back off slightly i mean because we all had to play before you had to sort of belt everything out yeah. to cut through you know and we don't need to do that anymore so yeah just learn that we can trust you can play soft you don't need to attack everything as much to cut through because it's going to 
come through, you know, but it's easier. And it sounds like it's trying to get a bit more how you're describing exactly. Germany. That's true. Well, yeah, it is actually. Yeah, and, it's and hard to change like, you know, as soon as it builds up and everyone gets excited, you know, you just start doing what you've to dig a always done. So it's difficult um, and we do need to, you know, have conductors that remind us yeah. to, you know, that we don't have to do that all the time. It's, it's nice to turn things down occasionally there's a conductor. You're normally trying to exactly. Much, you're trying to get energy up, and then sometimes it's nice to go. Actually, you know, go down and go down. Exactly. The stage is tiered now for the first time because it didn't used to be. So that makes it a lot easier for the people at the back. Yeah, that's the strings. Um, I mean, seeing it, it's beautiful yeah. to look at. I guess it also it means now that you can literally pretty much eyeball almost anyone else on the stage that's in front of you. So people at the back of the stage can literally the orchestra can literally see everyone which is really exciting isn't it exactly yeah because that used to be really difficult for the people at the back you were just felt you were on your own you know yeah. Siberia and couldn't have no connection with anything else so that's so even for the people at the back now it's fun they feel part of it fantastic well Kirsty, i'm gonna say thank you so much it's it's always a delight to talk to you in in any way shape or form and great <laughs> to see you on stage and uh thank you for joining us today we look forward to seeing you at the sydney opera house or in a concert hall somewhere around the planet. Great. Thank you, Matt. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Tempo, proudly presented by Sydney Youth Orchestras. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to click follow. For more information about SYO, visit syo.com.au.